Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about working your way up from assistant to TV writer with a special guest, Bob Dearden, who is a writer on the CW's iZombie. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both. All right, let's get started. So first up, just tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you ended up here. Well, I was born and raised in Ottawa, Canada, and then lived and worked in British Columbia for a number of years in my 20s and early 30s, at which point I decided to go back to school, uh, applied to a couple different schools, but ended up getting accepted at the University of Texas at Austin for an MFA in screenwriting. While I was there, there was an internship component. And I ended up fulfilling that by interning for Rob Thomas, who is the uh, showrunner of iZombie and at that time was best known for Veronica Mars and Party Down. Basically, one thing sort of led to another, um, a variety of uh, assistant jobs, the first one being um, an office assistant on the Veronica Mars movie that was shot the summer after I graduated. So that's what brought me out to L.A., uh, Rob was kind enough to and generous enough to offer myself and two other interns that had worked with him over that year work as PAs. And so we all moved out here, did that for the summer, strung together a few other assistant jobs uh, after that, and then ended up coming back to work for Rob as an assistant on uh, post-production of the movie, which was simultaneous with the development of iZombie, among a few other pilots at that time. But iZombie was the one that went. And so I just continued to uh, to hang on tight to those coattails, and, <laughs> and that's what brought me to working in the writer's room. Before you dig into the whole movie into the U.S. and, and job process, I'm kind of curious, you went through an MFA program mm-hmm. uh, for screenwriting, is that correct? That's right. So do you feel that's actually worth going through those kinds of programs, considering that you're now in the business? Yeah, I mean, it, it was for me, and probably the biggest reason why, I mean, there was a lot of things that I gained from that experience, but the biggest one that sort of led to my career directly was obviously the opportunity to to meet and work with Rob while I was in Austin, and that was a pretty big stroke of luck, I think, and, and great timing as well, just because it it happened to coincide with the movie. And with that came, I think, more opportunities for him, which then I was able to to tag along on. If somebody is debating that question of whether I need to go to to film school in order to work in Hollywood, I don't know which side of that debate I would land on overall. I mean, I just know how it worked out for me. And I know it gives you a great foundation, not only of like how to approach your writing, or your filmmaking, if that's the path you're choosing, but also like the sort of contacts and connections that you, that you build there, both with classmates and with faculty. And a lot of faculty, the better schools are going to have connections in Hollywood and so on and so forth. So it, it is a nice sort of uh, entry point, uh, or it can be, but I know it's also very expensive and not all that realistic for a lot of people. I don't know that it's necessary. I just know that it worked out in my case, I think there are, as everyone says, I mean, there's everyone's got their own story. There's a million paths of how to get here. I don't think that's an essential box you have to tick off if this is what you want to do, but uh, it does have its advantages in my experience. Yeah, I mean, particularly for someone coming from another country like we've all done, perhaps it's a, it's a good way to get your foot in the door and have some contacts on the ground in the U.S. Um, yeah. when you previously kind of knew no one. For sure. I mean, in my case, uh, one of the key components of that was that I was able to work for a year after I finished school on an extension of my student visa. And I was able to do those assistant jobs for that year, which I wouldn't be able to do in our field on any other visa from coming from Canada. So it's a huge advantage to just have that bit of a runway to try and, you know, establish yourself enough to then qualify for the next visa. 
but that student visa, uh, without that, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to work as an assistant here in, in LA at all. And that was obviously a, a pretty important step in what I'm doing now. So, Well, to that point, can you walk us through that visa process and moving to the US from another country? Sure. I don't know if it's different from other countries versus Canada. I, I think it's kind of the same process when you're a student anyway. Really easy to get a student visa. You pretty much just have to get accepted to whatever school and fill out some paperwork. It might be different as an undergrad, but as a graduate student, it's a, it's a pretty easy path. There's a little bit of bureaucracy to wade through and, and that's it. And when you're on a student visa, while you're in school, you can work for, a, I think it's like 20 hours a week or something like that. So I was able to be like a teaching assistant at UT and have, have odd jobs to uh, tide me over. And then after that, you can apply for a separate extension. There's two different ones. There's a CPT and an OPT. And I don't remember quite what the difference is. But that's a little more of an involved process. Like I had to go down to my uh, international student center at UT and and have a bunch of meetings and figure a bunch of stuff out. And there's a little bit of a cost to that, but not much as I recall. It's like a few hundred bucks. And that basically gives you a year from the date that you graduate. And in that year, you're pretty much free to work in any field that's related to the field in which you studied. So assistant jobs are, are wide open as long as they're in entertainment and in media. So that was great. After that, uh, I knew my visa was running out. I knew I didn't qualify for an 01, which is sort of the better known like creative artistry visa that, you know, if you want Russell Crowe to be in your movie, that's the visa you get him. And it is a merit-based visa and it, it um, requires a lot of time and money to, to get those applications in. I used a, a lawyer, which I think is, is pretty essential because there's so much uh, kind of red tape and stuff that you have to get through that to learn that process myself would have taken that whole year of being on my student visa probably. <laughs> so there's, there's a cost associated with that. There's a cost associated with applying. It ended up running me about $7,000, I think, altogether. And I wasn't really, I didn't have the credits. Like it's a merit-based visa. So you kind of have to have a track record of success in your field to be considered for this visa or to be approved for this visa. I didn't have that when my student visa was running out because to that point, I had just co-written a web series with Rob. It was like a, an offshoot of uh, the Veronica Mars universe. And that was my first writing credit. We'd produced it, but it hadn't, it hadn't gone on online yet. It ended up being on the CWC, but it wasn't up at that point. And I was also in the middle of writing a freelance episode for the first season of iZombie, during which I was a writer's assistant, but they, again, were generous enough to give me a, a script. And so that hadn't aired yet. Our season was still like almost a year or not quite a year, but it was like eight months away from airing. I had nothing. I like, you know, anyone who looked up my name, who was processing this application would find nothing, no credits or whatever. And so that was sort of a non-starter. And there's a couple other visas that people that I've known that have been in a similar position have been able to apply for. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but the, there's nothing, there's no visa that's specifically geared for people that are working their way up in a creative field uh, coming from Canada to the US. There's a few that if you're getting into sort of management positions or like these vague titles that can sort of fit an entertainment job that you can kind of wedge your way into that. And some people do. But in my case, it just, it wasn't a fit. Like there was nothing, there's no way for me to say like, I'm an up and coming writer's assistant. Therefore, I mm -hmm. qualify for these other visas. I just, I just didn't. So at that point, which was uh, midway through the writing of the first season of iZombie, and I think it was August like 2014, I had to go back home because my student visa ran out. Luckily, our show was produced in Vancouver, and I'd been with, with Rob and our other producers during the pilot. So I'd met all these people that work in our production office and all the crew, and they were 
kind enough to give me a, a bit of a make work job on the tail end of the production of the first season of iZombie, which then encompassed like the completion of my script and the production of my episode. And thereafter involved a lot of ordering of birthday cakes for whoever <laughs> was in the office. Uh, we jokingly called me my title, the birthday wrangler. Oh. Um, and, you I'm know, very you, familiar with that concept. Is that right? <laughs> And I, I mean, I did a few uh, other things as well that were um, less of a joke. But, you know, it was a it was a low end sort of production assistant job just to kind of keep me in the family. Then when iZombie finally aired that March, like we finished shooting in February, I think it was. We finally aired that March and the web series that I mentioned uh, had been up for a few months by this point. I was able to at least entertain the notion of being of, of qualifying for an one visa. So with very little optimism, we went through that process and I'd also been offered a job on season two. So I had a contract that if I zombie got picked up for a second season meant that I would be, you know, employed for, I think it was like a three year contract. So it, that didn't hurt, but I still didn't expect, uh, I didn't know, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't expect uh, necessarily to be approved. Luckily I was, and that enabled me to then work full time, you know, from seasons two, three, and four. Uh, and now I'm going through that process again because the O-1 visa has a three-year cap. So every three years, you have to kind of reapply. And uh, as much as I'd like to be more optimistic this time, that's just not my nature. So I'm sort of on pins and needles waiting to see what happens. Yeah, I feel like we've all kind of been in that boat a little bit with the visa situation. So, And, and I think it's really useful for our listeners. We have a number of listeners from Canada just to know those kind of specifics and stuff right. as well. So it's uh, very useful. So just going back to those kind of early jobs, even starting with the internship, mm -hmm. um, just tell us a little bit about what it's like kind of starting at the ground floor like that and that experience is like and how you start to work your way up. Well, I think my experience would be on the sort of extremely lucky end of the spectrum. You know, like I, I think we've all heard sort of horror stories, not necessarily about dealing with egos or just, you know, bosses that take advantage of that sort of context, although those stories certainly do exist. But even just kind of being run ragged, doing uh, menial tasks that have no relation to what it is you ultimately want to do. In my case, just by virtue of the fact that I was interning under Rob in Austin, that's the luckiest arrangement I can possibly imagine because he treated myself and the other interns almost like a, you know, a very green, very inexperienced mini writer's room. Cause he was in Texas, you know, he's got producing partners and, and studio executives and network executives that he's constantly communicating with at that time about the pilots he was writing. And he was writing three pilots at the time. I think one was for HBO. And so he had that, those lines of communication, but he didn't have people there with him as he was trying to break the story and as he was trying to write his scripts. And so we served as sounding boards that, you know, the more we sort of built that relationship, the more, I guess, sort of trust he had in us and the more confidence we had to sort of offer our ideas and thoughts. And it, it sort of grew progressively from there to the point where he was even giving us little assignments like, hey, pitch that you had about a certain scene. When you try, try writing up a version of that, give you notes on it. And so it was this great kind of crash course, like awesome. in, in addition to the, the stuff we were doing in grad school, because in grad school, like you're on your own, you're writing whatever you're writing. Uh, at least in the way UT runs. Uh, and then you've got these workshops like once or twice a week where you reconvene, everyone's read everyone else's work and you just get a bunch of feedback and it, sometimes it's contradictory and your head's swimming a little bit. And so in this case, it, it was, you know, much sort of smaller scale, but also like much more kind of specific and geared toward a project that was actually, you know, sort of paid for already and potentially going to be produced. So it was like a different look into the process, which was pretty enlightening. 
And then that just sort of continued both with myself when I was an assistant for Rob over the course of the development of iZombie and the other pilots he was working on at that time. You know, once iZombie got picked up, I was the writer's room assistant for the first season or for the first half of the first season. But even seeing like the other assistants and how they're treated, there's, I think there's just a huge advantage to working for people that understand what it is that you want to do is what everyone else around you is already doing. And the more opportunities to kind of um, flex your creative muscles or to learn what that is and what that's going to look like when you get there, the better environment it is. And of course we still have assistants that, you know, and when I was an assistant, I still had to do some menial tasks. That's just the nature of the job. But Rob gives uh, little assignments to, you know, everybody that's on staff. And I think that I don't know how common that is because the only show I've worked on is the only showrunner I've worked for. Um, but I think that environment just sort of breeds a, a certain or fosters a certain um, atmosphere that's, that's pretty conducive to a liking what you do and and b getting the most possible creativity flowing. You know, because there's there's stuff that that people still quote from iZombie that came from somebody who was not on the full time writing staff. You know, like I said, luckiest possible end of that spectrum is is where I landed, and that was just. Uh, by virtue of the fact that I was in Austin where not many showrunners work. And here was a guy who did a bunch of stuff that I, I was a big fan of and was willing to take me on as an intern. And so it's a bit of a, you know, small pond type scenario. I know that it, there are some schools out here in LA that offer that sort of connection with their alumni and stuff like that in terms of mentorships and everything. But I was really lucky in that there just wasn't, there, there was basically like a couple of showrunners in Austin and nobody had ever asked them before if they wanted an intern. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. So were you already familiar with Rob Thomas before you worked for him? Yeah. I knew Party Down best. Mm-hmm. Uh, Are be- you having fun yet? <laughs> <laughs> I was a huge fan of that. It was actually introduced to me by the guys that ended up interning with me, uh, classmates of mine at UT. So it was a recent acquisition, I guess, to my, my binge queue. But I loved it. Loved everything about it. Both Party Down and Veronica Mars were not really available on the cable system, you know, where I lived in Canada at the time that those shows were on. Veronica Mars, I read about a lot because I'd always just read like Entertainment Weekly and stuff like that. And I kept hearing about it or seeing it on end of season best of, uh, you know, or most underrated shows or whatever. So I was familiar with his existence, but I didn't know of it until I got to Austin and, and realized, oh, the guy that wrote Party Down also created Veronica Mars and he lives here. And I found that out just from attending the Austin Film Festival and seeing him speak on both of those topics. So I came to Party Down first, or became a fan of Rob first because of Party Down, and then came to Veronica Mars when you know I knew he was uh, around and just wanted to sort of learn more about his, his work. Obviously, it's a, it's a great show. I instantly became a fan of it when I started binging it. So it was a pretty big thrill to be able to work on it as, as my first kind of, even though it was like I was in the office, so I wasn't really in the mix or on set that much. It was still a pretty big deal to me to be able like to you know the show that i had just become a fan of and just you know devoured all three seasons of very recently all of a sudden i'm working on this fan-funded movie you know were you part of the kickstarter campaign uh i contributed and got my my signed poster and all that (laughs) um and we got to uh myself and the other interns we got to be kind of gophers i guess at like rob hosted i guess a kickstarter conclusion party at a bar in austin while we were there Mm. So I think the Kickstarter duration is usually a month. And so it was the end of the month and they had far surpassed their goal. But Rob hosted a 
just an open party for anyone who wanted to come that was a fan of the show. And uh, Jason Doring ended up showing up as a guest. Uh, he and I climbed a fence behind the bar so we could sort of sneak him past the, the fans at the front and get him <laughs> on stage with Rob as a surprise, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool, like especially, you know, not ever having any interaction with something, you know, a production like that. And by that point, I think the novelty of knowing Rob had, had worn off a little bit. I mean, I was pretty nervous and excited about meeting him and working with him in the beginning, but he just makes it so kind of welcoming and friendly that after like six months, it just felt like we were just a couple of dudes that worked together, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one significantly more talented than the other, but, <laughs> but I think, I think Rob's pretty talented too. <laughs> Ooh. So you didn't think that you were going to intern for the lead singer of Matchbox 20? Uh, I did not. No, I, I no, no concerns with that. We did have uh, that Rob Thomas on the show though. Um, <laughs> That's funny. In our second season finale. Sadly, but comically uh, is a victim of his zombie massacre at the party at which he's performing <laughs> and, uh, and has his brains eaten. And then, the zombies that eat his brains uh, are shown playing some of his songs. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. He was pretty. He was a good sport. So you mentioned Austin. What is that like as a city for kind of writing and production in film and TV? I don't know that I'm uh, the best person to answer that, but in my experience, you know, I was only there for two years, and it was only uh, eight months at a time. For each of those two years, I went back home to to Canada. In between, I get the impression that uh, the city as a whole is in a like a two decade uh, exponential curve of, you know, increased population and, and just sort of change to the layout. And I've gone back for the awesome film festival a couple of times. And there are even places since I've been there that are completely made over, uh, you know, sections of downtown that used to be, you know, a couple of bars across from each other and a bunch of houses is now like the new strip of bars where college kids and 20 somethings go. And there's a, just always a ton of new construction. It seems like a ridiculously fast growing city. Don't know how much that affects the, the film and television community there. I know there's been some growth, certainly in the last like 10 or 20 years, you know, kind of built on the foundation of, I think the general aura of the city, uh, and the way people sort of dig being there. The Austinites like uh, Richard Linkletter and Robert Rodriguez, who are from there and have ties there and have filmed a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of their stuff there. So I get the impression that there is a little more going on that's increasingly mainstream, but I think it still has a pretty uh, solidly indie vibe, um, you know, when it comes to the the film and television production there. There's a lot of uh, classmates of ours who were in more of the production track at UT. Uh, you know, who are still there and constantly working on just like small budget, do it yourself type stuff. That's quality. I mean, it's amazing work, but it does feel like that's the majority of the, of the business there is that sort of lower budget, do it yourself variety. And going back to the Veronica Mars movie, how was it like to be working on that production? And how did you transition from that to the Dick Casablanca's web series? Uh, well, the, the, um, played again Dick series was brought up, if I remember correctly, like just after the movie had wrapped. And I don't think they knew what the release date was going to be just yet, but the idea was to do something really low budget with Ryan, uh, Ryan Hansen that would serve as a bit of a viral marketing kind of thing 
I don't know all the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, I know that, that Rob asked myself and the guy who ended up directing the series, Viet Nguyen, who's uh, another mentee uh, of Rob's, actually used to be a high school student of Rob's back in Texas when Rob was briefly a, a teacher in his 20s uh, and has since you know worked in post-production on a bunch of, on Veronica Mars and on, uh, on our show, and now is a director uh, of other CW shows as well. But he and I were, you know, he was at the time doing a... Uh, a behind the scenes documentary on the making of Veronica Mars and just like the fan funding aspects of it. And I was working as, you know, an office PA and, um, Rob asked if I wanted to write this thing or take a crack at it and Viet would direct it. We made one attempt and it sort of wasn't exactly, I think what, uh, what Rob was hoping for. <laughs> um, and so it kind of got shelved for a minute cause he didn't feel like he had time to dedicate to it while he was in post-production on Veronica Mars and developing iZombie and these other shows. But then the, as I understand it, the, the CW kind of got wind of it and was like, Oh, this is something we'd love to have on our digital platform. And from that point, it became a little more of a serious production and they wanted to put some money behind it. And so Rob was still swamped, but he was like, yeah, let's, let's do this for sure. But can we do it? Uh, you know, when I have less on my plate and less on his plate turned out to be like, while. Uh, I Zombie season one was was in production, so he, he didn't really have less on his plate. It was it was just kind of pushed to a time when he was busy with different stuff. But it ended up coming out after the movie because of that uh, that sort of progression. And fortunately for me, Rob still decided to keep me on as co writer, uh, and Viet still got to direct it. Now Viet had had a lot more experience doing what he did at that time than I did doing what I did, so it was a little more of a sort of a silver platter offer for me. I don't want to say I hadn't earned yet, but at the time I certainly felt like I was felt like I hadn't delivered on the on the first attempt, and that he would be well within his rights to just do it himself. But fortunately for me, he uh, he kept me on and ended up being my first credit. Got me in the guild. You know, more than anything else, was just like a super instructive and really fun experience. You know, because we shot it on uh, somewhere in Hollywood. That might even be wrong. It was it was somewhere like ten minutes from where we were working. <laughs> they rented this house for a couple of weeks and and shot everything in the same house. And you have Ryan and some of the core cast, I guess, which really was just Ryan, and then this, <laughs> this revolving group of other people that had you know been part of Veronica Mars in one way or the other. We were working at the time, but I got to visit if we weren't busy in the writer's room. I could just drive down, you know, to the set and hang out. And Rob was almost never there because he was way too busy. So I almost got to be like the writer on set. I mean, I don't think I was held to the lofty standard that a, a proper writer on set would have been. But every once in a while, somebody would ask my opinion and I'd feel like, oh, I'm, this is actually my job now. <laughs> um, so that was really cool. And then I, because I hadn't been on set on Veronica Mars and my, my two buddies had, you know, I did have a little pang of jealousy about not getting to really meet anyone. And all of a sudden I got to hang out at Video Village with like, you know, Ryan obviously was fantastic and couldn't be nicer, but everybody else too that, you know, that dropped in and got to meet Kristen Bell finally, which was pretty cool. So it was just, it was a very, very cool experience that, you know, as far as like a first writing credit, first opportunity, I, I don't know how it could have worked out any better, you know? Definitely recommend all our listeners who are fans of Veronica Mars to check out Play It Again, Dick, because it's freaking hilarious. Uh, well, thank you kindly. I uh, 
I don't know. Is it still up on the CW seed? Is the CW seed still in existence? <laughs> I think <laughs> Probably, so. Probably. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, yep. I think it's, it's available uh, online nice. somewhere. Yeah, we had a lot of fun doing it. And it's, I mean, Ryan's got his YouTube show now, Ryan Hansen Solves Crimes on Television. <laughs> and if you like that show, it's a very similar vibe. And Ryan is just perfectly suited to play that sort of goofy, self-effacing character. So even before that, as a, an assistant to someone, how do you kind of approach getting your stuff read by your boss, especially when they are someone at that kind of showrunner level? Like, how does that work for you? Well, in my case, it was a little bit cart before the horse because he would give us these little assignments that I mentioned. So he was reading my writing almost from the beginning, but it wasn't original ideas of mine. It was, you know, stuff that had sort of happened under his supervision and guidance. But I think, you know, he could still get a sense of where my... I guess, skills and flaws lay from that. After that, with just because of that relationship, it was pretty easy to get him to read stuff. And I, I didn't bombard him with requests or anything. In fact, I was probably a little more on the nervous side than I should have been because I just didn't want him to read something I had done. After him being like pretty in favor of some of the work I'd done for him, I didn't want to take a couple steps back by showing him some script that I had written that wasn't quite up to snuff, you know? He reads it and he's like, I've made a terrible mistake. Right. <laughs> well, that, I, in a sense, that was my fear that I was going to reverse his, his impression of me up to that point or uh, of my abilities. But I, I, you know, I have, my case is very specific and uncommon, I would say. But I have seen, you know, Rob deal with some of our other assistants who didn't have that pre existing relationship. And, I think, you know, there's no good way to ask somebody to take a chunk of their time and devote it to your cause. To my mind, it's doing it without expectations, doing it with a certain etiquette, and also just really using your time more on the on the development of that script and the craft and your writing style and your your process and all that stuff to make the script as good as it can possibly be. If you can spend most of your energy on that, I don't know that the rest will entirely take care of itself, but I feel like that's energy better spent than on quote unquote hustling. And that's just my experience. There may be many, many success stories about people who are better at social interaction than I am and haven't been able to grease those wheels. But I just feel like most writers anyway, uh, at least that I've met, are not uh, super keen on being sold something. They want to see it on the page. And so... If you're in a position where you're an assistant and you have an established relationship with somebody, my feeling is, you know, spend as much time as you can on learning from them, reading their scripts, seeing what their sensibility is, if they're the person you want to work for, and, and then just, you know, every bit of spare time that you have, dedicating it to improving your script. So when the opportunity comes, because uh, sometimes it's, you know, it's not even a question of you uh, figuring out a way to get your script into your boss's hands. It's they come to you and they're and they're like, hey, I have this opportunity. It's not something I want to do, but I could shepherd you on this small project the way that, you know, Play It Again Dick was sort of presented to me. And if you're not ready at that time because you've been dawdling about your own work or focusing more on like schmoozing and, and uh, networking and that sort of thing, then that's a missed opportunity that you don't know when it's going to come around again. Uh, and I kicked myself a few times because there were other opportunities that Rob, uh, you know, presented to myself and some of the other assistants and interns that have worked for him. And I just wasn't writing constantly. I didn't have stuff. I mean, I had stuff to give them, but I didn't have stuff that I was really, really proud of or thought like, this is going to be a slam dunk. I just had stuff that I had, you know, and, and it ended up not being good enough. So I got lucky that those missed opportunities didn't cost me too great in the end. But that, I don't know if that all made sense, but, uh, you know, to my mind, it's more about 
using the opportunity when you have that sort of relationship and access to a showrunner, especially if you're actually a fan of their work, um, to learn how it is they do what they do and hone your craft so that when the opportunity comes or when you're finally ready to ask for that opportunity, the, the stuff you have on the page is as good as it can possibly be. And to that point, what was it like transitioning from not just working for someone you admire, but really almost becoming a peer with that person? I would first say I don't think Rob would consider us peers, but <laughs> I don't want to speak for him. He may, uh, he may be extremely jealous of my talent. <laughs> no, I, I think it was uh, a very gradual process. But again, like Rob was always super generous and welcoming like right from the get-go. So it never felt like he was talking down to us. Like certainly there was an awareness that he had a lot more of experience and, and myself and the other interns were pretty green. And there was some stuff that we just didn't know. But when it came to like sort of the processing of ideas or like the like spitballing and bouncing stuff around and suggesting like why something might not work or why something else might work better, I think he from the get-go had a inordinate amount of respect for our opinions that we hadn't earned at that point he's just that's the type of guy he is he's pretty open to uh, uh letting us in to his process fully transitioning from you know intern to assistant obviously there was about two or three years there where a certain amount of trust and and comfortability was was built up when i first got into the writer's room as a freelance writer you know i i'd already spent six episodes as the writer's assistant and in our room anyway like i I certainly didn't try and dominate any conversations, but I, it's not like I was told to sit still and be quiet and just type. Uh, I was allowed to speak up, so I was already a little bit comfortable adding my two cents in. Some might argue a little too comfortable adding my two cents, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But it was, it was a pretty nerve-wracking process to be like, okay, you've been in the dugout the whole time, but now you're up to bat. To Rob's credit, again, like the, the process didn't change. The process I'd witnessed all the other assigned writers go through on their first scripts for iZombie. I mean, their first scripts for our show. Most of them had written many scripts before. He didn't alter the process. Just It wasn't like kid gloves or anything. We just kept the process the same. And so that helped because there was a certain just sort of inertia that you had to latch on to. And that, that sort of alleviated some of my nerves, but they certainly came back when I was sent off to then execute the outline we had collaboratively developed for that episode. So I don't know if there's any great way to deal with that. It just is what it is. You know, you work for an opportunity and then when it finally comes, you, you are appropriately nervous that you're going to screw it up. I think that's just human nature and especially the nature of most uh, neurotic writers. So it wasn't, it, there wasn't a giant sea change in terms of how I was treated or how my relationship with Rob went from that point. I was lucky again in that it was just this sort of gradual building of a trust between us and a, I guess more of a trust on his side that I wasn't going to totally screw it up and a confidence on my side that uh, he wasn't wrong about that. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like being a writer's assistant in a room and what's a good writer's assistant? Yeah. I mean, one of the pieces of advice that Rob gave us, myself and, and my buddies when we were first working for him was, you know, if you're an assistant or when you're an assistant in any capacity, everybody that, that is above you knows that your life's goal is not to be an assistant. It's self-evident. So you really don't have to do anything to prove that to people. You don't have to spend a lot of energy trying to sort of angle and work your way up a ladder that's not really there yet. The best thing you can do is if your job is to get the coffee order every morning or to get lunch or to fill up the bowl of chocolates or whatever, do that menial task to the best of your ability and without complaint. And then people will appreciate that enough to ask you, what else are you interested in? 
And I think there's a lot of people that have that backwards that think I've got a foot in the door. Now it's time to sort of push everyone out of the way that I can or climb in any way that I can socially to ingratiate myself to the people with power. And I think that again, probably works for a bunch of people that I've never met, but I think it also backfires in as many cases as it is successful. So that was the piece of advice Rob gave us. I feel kind of lucky that I had, I wasn't coming into grad school right after undergrad. Like I'd been working and, and had, uh, you know, another career for a good 15 years by the time I went back to grad school. And certainly by the time I, I started working in this field, so I feel like I had a more of an inherent understanding of that than I would have if I had come into this position in my early 20s or something. And so I wasn't impatient. I wasn't, even though I was starting at, you know, at a slight disadvantage age-wise, I didn't feel impatient. I didn't feel like I needed to sort of nudge my way forward. It felt like just do your job and opportunities will come when they come. Maybe that strategy doesn't work for people as well. I, I really don't know. But in, in my case, and in a lot of the cases of friends of mine that have sort of come up with me or just after me, I've seen them go through the same process. And and it does really feel like m most people in power are going to, uh, at least in the writer's world, TV writer's world, are, are going to be a little bit put off by sort of overly ambitious uh, assistants that are clearly not interested in doing the job for which they've been hired. Can you talk about not just getting that first script, but also moving to a position where you're getting staffed officially on iZombie? Uh, well, in my case, it was, it, it's kind of funny because I was working for all the executive producers, as I mentioned, when iZombie's pilot was in production. And one of my jobs was to print off uh, all of the scripts that were coming in from agents and managers for potential staffing of season one. Uh, we didn't know at this time that we were picked up, but I guess that's just how it works. Pilots that have a shot start looking into staffing before they know for sure that they're going to be a series. And so while we were wrapping the production on the pilot, I was printing off all these scripts from, you know, different writers who were hoping to get on our show. And I was hoping to get on our show. It definitely felt like I would be leapfrogging a lot of the steps in the process if that happened. But that, that was still where my mind went. You know, this might be my shot. So I was working on my own pilot spec because in school I had written mostly features and I have a really good TV pilot. So I started working on that, you know, while glancing at some of these other pilots that were being sent in. And ultimately the, the pilot I wrote, the feedback I got was it was good, but not quite good enough. And that was fine. And so they offered me a job as the writer's assistant, uh, you know, for which I am eternally grateful. It was a weird thing to be seeing staffing season, like the, the machine turning from the inside feels like a game of double Dutch where I'm trying to find my, my spot to jump in and it just didn't work out. And so I kind of, I guess had a more roundabout way to get staffed in that my uh, freelance script from season one ended up being what got me hired for season two. I never wrote another pilot that Rob and, and the other EPs read or that the studio or network asked to read. They just trusted Rob's judgment. And Rob and Diane Ruggiero Wright, the co-creator of the show, um, were, I guess, both happy enough with the script that I had turned in or the draft that I had turned in you know, to, to put me on the staff full-time for season two. So it was, again, I think an uncommon path to get where I got. And once more, very fortunate, but I don't know that it would have worked out the other way, you know, because I've written pilots since then that haven't, you know, blown up the world. So I don't know. I, I, I wonder sometimes if I didn't have the access that I had, 
where I had to, you know, if I, if I had a more conventional path that I had to follow, would I be anywhere near the position I'm in? I would like to think it would have happened somehow anyway, but uh, if I'm honest with myself, I mean, it, it, it happened the way it happened, probably because that's the only way it could have happened for me at that time, you know? Can you just talk broadly about your experience of writing for iZombie? What's it been like? It's been great, uh, is the headline. Um, it's, it's a super fun show to work on. I feel like I'm prefacing a lot of my words here with super. Um, but Are you under duress right. right now? Uh, it's my, yeah, it's my code word, my safe word. Um, no, it's been great. Again, I feel like we're on the lucky end of the spectrum in that great showrunners. We have great hours compared to a lot of shows that I've heard about. And we've had uh, not as much turnover, I think, as other shows as well. Like it, it just, it feels like a very sort of well-run machine from a logistic level, uh, if nothing else, but also from a creative standpoint, because, you know, Rob is, is pretty decisive and he knows what he wants. So while there is a lot of discussion and, uh, you know, a lot of sort of zigging and zagging to get to where we're, where we eventually end up, he is pretty decisive and he, he is excellent at, uh, keeping the trains running on time, as they say. So that's a huge advantage because you know every day you're coming in for a, a pretty consistent schedule and you know what to expect within those hours. Uh, we also have, I think, a, a great group who all gets along pretty well. There's inherently going to be competition in that environment. You're all sort of throwing your ideas at the wall and hoping that yours is the one that sticks. And if it isn't, it's because it's someone else's was better. So some of us, I think, are a little more competitive than others, I think. Uh, I do the worst job of any writer in our room, possibly in Hollywood, of of hiding my bitterness when <laughs> when an idea that I don't like, uh, you know, gets picked over one of mine. Um, but that's just the nature of the beast, and you know, it's that's why we all want to have our own shows so that we can be the person that everyone's annoyed at for for picking <laughs> one idea over another. But it's it's a really great environment, also dog-friendly, which is uh, oh. like 50% of the key to my happiness uh, <laughs> on a daily basis in the workplace. But it's a great group. There's been a, a group of us that have been there f- since season one. There's a There's been another group that's been there since season two. Um, and I think we're all pretty tight, uh, which is great because I, you know, coming to LA, I didn't really know anyone except for the guys that I went to school with that came out at the same time. And most of them work for iZombie too. We've got a sort of a UT contingent there. Rob is a, is a UT alum as well. So there, that may have something to do with it, but, um, it's just that it's a good group and creatively, I, you know, before I got into all this, if somebody had asked me or told me that I'd be working on a, uh, like a zombie apocalyptic romantic comedy uh, <laughs> crime solving show. And I don't even know if that covers all of our genres. I, you know, that would not have been my guess for myself. Um, <laughs> we have so much fun just kind of, uh, subverting some of the tropes within those genres and, just being lighthearted uh, about very dark subject matter. Like it's a, it's a very specific tone that, uh, I, I think we all enjoy, uh, writing to very much. You know, it, it's not the sort of straight ahead seriousness of a law and order. Uh, and yet it has that procedural element within it. Um, and it's not a complete farce either, but we do things that are totally farcical, like, you know, the names for a lot of our, businesses or characters, you know, and it's just fun to be able to be in that sort of that gray area between genres and between tones that I think prior to recently would have been a non-starter for a, a TV show. And there's a lot more of that stuff out there now that blurs lines between comedy and drama and, and just sort of uh, challenges the conventions that we all grew up with. 
and I think our show does it in some pretty fun ways. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And to that point, can you speak to how your show breaks episodes and arcs? And also, are you guys index cards or whiteboards? We put index cards on whiteboards. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah. See, we're, just, we're merging Next everything. Level. <laughs> um, we started with just whiteboards. And then after, I don't know, a month or two of uh, Rob having to erase some big thing that he had written and put it somewhere else on the board, we finally got wise. But breaking an episode for us, you know, to start at the beginning of the season, what we typically do is talk for a week or two about the season arcs because we're, you know, we're heavily serialized as well as having the procedural element. So we talk about the season arcs. We sort of go character by character and decide, I guess, first, where did we leave off last year? What are the implications of that? And uh, and where do we want to end this season? What do we want the, you know, the journey of each character to be? Then we start talking about what are the specific, um, you know, sort of signposts along the way or turning points um, in each storyline. And we very loosely, like we divide our board up into 13, we have 13 episodes. We divide up into like 13 columns. We very loosely map out, you know, what's going to happen and when as far as these big moments for our character arcs. And then from there, we start talking about individual episodes and whatever episode it is, it's, it's a similar process on a smaller scale. We look at where everybody left off last episode, talk about where we want them to be by the end of this episode, uh, and then try to devise, you know, storylines for each character that will get us from, from one point to the other. And there's always a bit of math in there too, or just sort of logistics where you're, you know, some actors are signed to a contract that only allows them to be in 10 of 13 episodes, for instance. And so you kind of have to figure out like where, can we put an episode long gap in so-and-so's storyline and how can we make that make sense that, you know, why Peyton's not showing up? Why, why not? And so we kind of have to map that out as well, which is, uh, you know, not the most uh, creative place to be operating from. It's just sort of the contracts are what they are. So you, uh, you have to kind of map things out that way. Sometimes you have to map things out based on the needs of production. Uh, you know, if a certain episode has like a big set piece uh, or a lot of, um, you know, zombies that we call Romero's that are fully made up. There's a pretty huge bump in costs associated with that. So maybe the next episode we have to dial things back and make them more affordable. So considerations like that kind of uh, play into it as well, but more on the creative side, we just kind of figure out the character arcs. And then once we've got a general idea of what all of our other characters, like we usually leave uh, live to, to last unless there's a specific serialized arc that has to be continued. Like one of her boyfriends died last episode. We should probably address that. We usually leave her to last or, or we leave the case to last. And so when we figure out where everyone's at and what's happening in their ongoing arcs, we then try to brainstorm like what is the, the most fun personality for her to have to adopt this episode that either gives us the ability to lean into everything else that's happening or provides like a funny contrast to whatever else is happening. So that's kind of our process. And then we just kind of map out all of the beats. Uh, you know, we, we do our sort of a through D or E story, you know, put each beat on an index card. We map those out individually, almost like they're in a vacuum. And then we try to merge them all on the big board and figure out how they play off each other and, and what are good transitions from this storyline to that one. And, you know, what should be the, the moment that brings us into a commercial break and, and all that stuff. And then once we have um, the episode mapped out, just in terms of the, of the bigger beats, we then go through the whole thing as a group and really kind of try to nail down like what each scene is. So every writer that gets sent off to, to write an episode has like a really extensive roadmap of how to get where the showrunner wants us to go. Uh, sometimes even down to like 
uh, line for line jokes that somebody just pitches like, wouldn't this be funny? Uh, and certainly down to small moments. And so you go, you know, you, you're writing all this down. The writer's assistant is taking notes, but the writer who's assigned is usually taking extensive notes themselves in a final draft document. And sometimes you have pieces of dialogue or pieces of a scene that you never change from that moment until you hand in your draft, which is wise because usually they've been signed off on already. So, you know, they're approved, but that's, that's kind of the process. And, you know, the writer who's assigned to an episode, their first mission is to write a story document that goes to the network and studio for approval. Then you write an outline, same sort of process, and then you're on your script. And so that writer is usually gone from our room for about three weeks and then you have to come back into the room and read all of the notes from the previous three weeks to <laughs> catch up to where everyone's at. We move pretty quick, like I said, because it's, it's pretty smooth operation. So this year, like I wrote the fifth episode, and by the time I got back, I think they were on the ninth. So I had to, <laughs> I had to figure out, like, what did I miss? Where are we at? And you just sit in the room for the, the first few days you come back, you just sit there, like, sort of stunned and silent. Like, I don't know what anyone's talking about. <laughs> I don't know why that joke's funny. I don't know what this means. <laughs> So iZombie is originally based off of uh, comics. How much of that do you guys use when you're breaking your story? In our case, we reference the comics more in an Easter egg way once in a while than anything else. When Rob and Diane were developing the pilot, I know that they love the comics. I think one of their big considerations, though, in terms of uh, making some wholesale changes to what the comic was, was purely from production standpoint, it wasn't going to be doable. Because the comic has a ton of like supernatural elements and you know, the sort of makeup or CGI or special effects that would be required to execute those is just not something that would be possible on, on our budget. So they took the elements that they thought were the most transferable, I think, to a show and then tried to build a procedural element into that. So they, you know, they took the core character who was Gwen in the comics and, and started us off on our tradition of pun names by calling her Livmore. Um, <laughs> and they kept her look and they kept the essence of, I guess, her zombie special abilities. And they transferred her to the police morgue in order to give her that construct you know that we had our first few seasons before clive knew who she was where she pretended she was a psychic and could then work with him on a case every week and that gave us the or that gave them i should say the engine you know for each individual episode and the case of the week stuff is you know it's always a bit of a balancing act because that tends to be the stuff that is the most difficult to uh, generate creatively especially after four seasons where you've got another murder with another, you know, set of clues and a, another set of red herring suspects. And it, it's hard after a while, especially like Rob and Diane being on Veronica Mars did the same thing for three years to come up with stuff that leads you down the wrong path and then gets you back on the right path and gets your, your confession in the end. And to, and to keep that fresh is difficult after a while. And also not necessarily the stuff that people are going to be most emotionally invested in because you, you know, you want to know what's happening with our core characters, you know, both in their personal lives and in their uh, battling of our big bads every year. And I think people tend to be a little more invested in that than the procedural stuff, but the procedural stuff is the spine. You know, it's the foundation on which everything else is built for a given episode. So it's a balancing act, but, you know, they felt that construct was necessary in order to make the show work, uh, especially as a, a broadcast show, you know, it's strictly serialized show. I think you find more of those on cable and streaming and premium, uh, than you do on broadcast. So for, for us to be able to have four seasons of iZombie and hopefully five and maybe six and seven, 
Um, <laughs> you know, we, you need that procedural element. So that was why they made the choice to change Gwen's job from a, a, a grave digger to a um, medical student whose life got upended. And now she works in the morgue and works with the police to give her a sense of, uh, of meaning that she lost when her, you know, when her life ended, essentially. And what is that fan interaction like with the writer's room? Do you guys take fan input into consideration in any capacity? Or is it just kind of fan art hanging on the writer's room's doors? Uh, no, I think we have... Uh, it's hard to know exactly because like, I'm not the decision maker, right? Like, I, I know how much I'm influenced. And even then, like a lot of it's subconscious. But I, I certainly am aware of fan reaction to certain storylines that we've done. And our first season was completely produced before an episode aired. So we did that without knowing what anyone would think of, of any of our characters or relationships or what uh, unintended subtext might be seen. And then the second season, you know, we, we had some of that information going in, but we started writing for the second season. I feel like right after the first season had finished airing, it might've been even overlapped a tiny bit. So we still were processing what we thought the show was where we thought our strong points were and and how much our fans agreed or disagreed with those assessments. So in the early stages, I think we were operating sort of in a vacuum. Uh, as the seasons have gone on, certainly we've been much more aware of, uh, of fan reaction to different storylines. And like our cast is super involved in social media and stuff like that. So that only adds to the amount of information that uh, we get funneled to us. It's a delicate subject, I think, in the sense that you don't want to be just writing fan service or anticipating what you think fans will like based on uh, how they reacted to um, storylines in the past. You know, it's certainly having access to, um, to fan feedback the way we do now certainly gives you the opportunity to avoid repeating the same mistakes over and over again, which is great. But I think the flip side of that coin is if you try to write toward anticipating what will get you social media buzz or something like that. I think it's a bit of a fool's errand because there's so many variables involved that you just never know. Uh, you never know what's going to land or resonate with people. That's not much of an answer, but I feel like I can certainly speak for myself and I, I feel most of the writers are definitely engaged on some level with fans on social media. We typically will, a writer of a given episode will live tweet that episode when it airs. And so you definitely get a lot of uh, a sense of what people on Twitter at least are thinking about. I think we also try to be sort of creatively true to to ourselves and and to what Rob and Diane what their intent is for the show and to a certain extent immunize ourselves from the influence of uh of too much social media feedback. <laughs> uh, you've been busy on iZombie but have you thought about going back and working as a writer in Canada? Have there been certain opportunities there for you? There haven't been opportunities either offered or pursued as of yet. However, it's definitely always in the back of my mind, both because that's home uh and I and I do imagine going back there sometimes, uh and because I may not have that choice if uh if my visa doesn't get renewed. So one way or the other, it's a definite possibility. Um, you know, the advantage of being in LA is obviously, even though our show is shot in Vancouver, as many are, many shows are shot all over the country. Um, most of them are still written here. And there is certainly a industry of Canadian television at home, but it's not nearly as prolific as it is here, obviously. And it's also more centered in Toronto than Vancouver. And home for me was British Columbia for uh, a long time before I came down here. So I, I don't know that I, if I did move back to Canada, I would move anywhere else. And there's really, that I know of, there's only a handful of shows that have writer's rooms there. So almost by default, it's less of an option. 
uh, in terms of advancing my career. But if that changes or if one of the few shows that is written there happens to uh, present an opportunity for me, it's something I would definitely consider. And, you know, when I grew up, at least to my mind, and I apologize to uh, listeners in Canada for this, but at least to my mind, Canadian programs were second to American programs. Like I wasn't growing up watching Danger Bay and uh, Beachcombers nearly as much. <laughs> Those are actual shows. Uh, nearly as much as I was watching, you know, Family Ties and The Cosby Show and Cheers. You know, in terms of my own sort of goals in the abstract, when I was thinking about becoming a TV writer, I thought about becoming a TV writer here. But nowadays with the cross-border shopping of a lot of shows or, you know, selling of shows in different markets overseas and I guess globalization in general sort of trickling down to Hollywood or, or trickling down to our product and with streaming services that seem to allow uh, fans from different places to have access to everything. Uh, it feels like there may be many more opportunities going forward to go back home and work on stuff that's going to be of a similar quality and potentially able to reach the same audience as working on stuff here. That said, I mean, I'm very happy to be working here. I don't know that there's many shows in Canada that A, would have uh, offered me the type of, uh, you know, sort of quick path to becoming a, a staff writer that I was afforded by working for Rob and for iZombie. I also don't know that we would be, I mean, we're not the highest rated show out there, but I, I don't know that there's many shows in Canada that would reach the same amount of people that, that iZombie reaches. And so just knowing that there are, you know, fans around the world that are familiar with my work is something I get a kick out of. And I, I you know, I'm not thinking necessarily about having a career anywhere else, but home is home. So mm -hmm. it's, it's always there. So on the flip side, are there any benefits to being a Canadian writer over here in the States, uh, be it tax credits or maybe more opportunities for work? I think there are some avenues uh, available to Canadian writers that don't apply to me yet uh, or don't apply to me on iZombie specifically. I think, you know, my boss and, and all the people above me uh, over the course of four seasons at iZombie have really gotten a kick out of making fun of me. <laughs> uh, you know, for being Canadian, for my accent, for the way I spell things, um, for my interests. So maybe there's an advantage there that I get to be a bit of a, a punching bag. And that's actually why they kept me around. They don't really like my scripts. They just like <laughs> making fun of the way I say out and about. But I know that there are shows that are produced in Canada that I, I can't remember exactly what the designation for this is, but essentially there's a point system that in order to be able to produce in Canada or to get a tax credit in Canada or something like that, they have to have a certain amount of people kind of in important creative positions that are Canadian. They don't have to be working from Canada, but they have to be Canadian. And so you want, you know, your lead might be Canadian. That'll get you a couple points or director of an episode or whatever. And writers count for that too. So I, like I know of a few shows where, you know, the showrunners were actively seeking Canadian writers in LA. Their writers rooms are here, but they maybe want to hire all American actors or whatever. And, and so they need to fulfill those requirements in order to uh, make their budgets work. So, I know of those. They, uh, it's not an um, opportunity I've ever been offered just yet, and I've been lucky in that iZombie keeps getting renewed so far, and so I, I haven't been out seeking a, a different job. But that's the only one I know of. I, I don't know that there's any... We, we were raised on uh, American television, like I said, just as much, if not significantly more so, than Canadian television when it comes to scripted stuff. So it doesn't feel like there's a great difference in my sensibilities or like, you know, the shows that we reference as we're discussing something in the room. 
uh, like I'm not going off on my own and talking about shows that no one's ever heard of. We're all talking about the same things. And I, you know, I feel like my sense of, uh, of televised storytelling is really the same as anyone who grew up here. Uh, no better, no worse. So it, it doesn't feel, I guess, just because there is such a, especially when it comes to pop culture, there's such a uh, cultural connection between our two countries that it doesn't feel like there's a great difference to me. Other than, like I said, I, I get to be like the, the goofy mascot. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your eventual kind of career goals and where would you ideally like to end up in this industry? I would love to run a show. I don't think I necessarily have developed the the craft necessary just yet but a lot of the sort of ancillary uh, responsibilities appeal to me i used to work in a very different industry but one that just required a pretty varied skill set in the job i was doing uh and i loved it i mean i loved figuring things out on the fly and and um you know trying to take in all these different sort of kinds of information at once and and from that formulate uh, you know, the best plan going forward, that type of process uh, appeals to me, always has. And that's what I see Rob doing a lot as our showrunner. And so I, I feel like that would be um, uh, certainly a goal from that perspective, as well as just like the, you know, the thrill of having something that you develop on your own, uh, actually becoming a show and, and having all the resources behind it, something that only existed in your imagination at some point, all of a sudden becoming manifest on TV would be pretty incredible. So ultimately, that's where I'd love to get. I think that's probably not dissimilar to just about everyone else that, that works in television. But for now, I'm pretty content just doing what I do. I hope iZombie keeps coming back. Uh, I hope, uh, you know, Rob gets a few other shows on the air. And if I can continue that working relationship till I retire, uh, I would not be upset with that. And, I, you know, as far as like uh, types of shows or genres, like I said, like the, the sort of tonal gray area that we exist in is very appealing to me. So I, I would love to kind of stay in that. You know, it's sitcoms, I think, are a little beyond my capabilities as far as just doing like straight comedy, one joke a page sort of stuff. I don't, I don't think that's my wheelhouse. And I also don't think, you know, straight drama or melodrama is my wheelhouse either. So I, I hope to keep kind of working in the, in the gray area. And, um, and I mean, there's a list that's way too long to mention of people I would love to, to work with or work for as well. So, um, hopefully I can keep this train going. Um, but for now it'd be great if the train was still I zombie. All right, before we go, we got some final questions for you. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Uh, I always gap on this question, even though <laughs> I watch TV constantly. Uh, the Americans being back on makes me very happy. I just finished a show that's been out for a couple years, but I binged it all a couple weeks ago, uh, Search Party. Oh, nice. Which I thought was great. I mean, obviously, I'm excited for Game of Thrones to come back, if for nothing else than just to see how it ends. Uh, <laughs> at this point, I think I'm actually a little more interested in, in where the books go, but there's mm -hmm. a good chance that I may never find out. <laughs> I feel like I have a real like smart, um, sophisticated, hip answers to this that I'm just forgetting right now. That's what happens in every meeting. Yeah. Hey, what are you watching, TV? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, re I really got to memorize the list. Uh, Search Party was fantastic, though. Yeah. Uh, I've only seen the first season, but I loved it. I need to get around to watching season two. It's so great. It's like just the nuances fantastic do you have any advice for aspiring tv writers who are sort of coming up and uh, wanting to to become a staffed writer themselves I, you know i don't know i i feel like my path as we've discussed was very unique and and also relied a lot on luck and timing um and just i think i i worked pretty hard to like once those opportunities were there to make use of them 
But if I had not been in Austin at the same time that Rob was, then that relationship would have never existed, let alone the many other ways in which I could have, you know, wrecked that relationship along the way, <laughs> like by, uh, you know, making fun of him on podcasts and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, the advice that, that I mentioned that Rob gave us when we were starting out, you know, is kind of the general place that I come from whenever someone asked me about advice starting is just, you know, be a decent human and continue to work on your craft. Use every opportunity you can to learn and to also demonstrate that you are a, a hard worker who knows the, um, the value of doing their job. And I mean, that's a bit sort of broad at the same time as being a bit, you know, just sort of common sense. But one thing that amazed me when I got here was how few people realize that they're shooting themselves in the foot just by virtue of the overly ambitious, overly aggressive, overly kind of um, concentrating on uh, the sort of social climbing aspects of, of work. Just not being that person uh, went a long way for me. I mean, I had a couple other assistant jobs that, that weren't with Rob in that first stretch and, you know, got sort of offered promotions and things. And, and I never felt like I had done anything in particular to earn them. I mean, I tried my best to do a decent job as an assistant, but, you know, I, I had not come from a place of, uh, of knowing how to answer phones and transfer calls or drive around LA without getting lost. So I made those rookie mistakes all the time. But nobody seemed to mind because, you know, I was clearly there to try and do a good job and wasn't sort of imposing myself on the people that had hired me in a way that was inappropriate. And and that to me is just, I mean, that's the easiest thing to do is just to, to not be uh, a burden. And yet I found that actually went a long way. It was almost like a addition by subtraction sort of situation. And uh, lastly, do you have any resources, be it books, apps, websites, whatever it is for our listeners? I've really enjoyed, I don't know how instructive these books are, but I've really enjoyed both of William Goldman's books. Adventures uh, in the Screen Trade? Yeah, and what, Which Lie Did I Tell is the other one, I think. Um, which basically is just a continuation that chronologically picks up where um, Adventures in the Screen Trade leaves off. Uh, you know, it's not going to give you a ton of instructive advice in terms of, you know, the, the process of screenwriting. Although, which lie did I tell has a um, whole section at the back where he sent a bunch of industry prof professionals. I, I feel like it's a short version, like maybe, maybe 20 or 30 pages of a script and had them give very harsh feedback, which was really kind of cool to, to read just because here's a guy who did Butch and Sundance and the Princess Bride. And he's got people just you know, absolutely destroying this, uh, the script that he wrote for the purposes of allowing people into that process. Other than that, I don't think they're instructional manuals and I, I don't know how valuable I think those instructional manuals are. I think, I mean, it's always good to have a frame of reference as far as, you know, deconstructing the stuff that you like and trying to uh, reverse engineer it. But I feel like, like every successful screenwriter that you know, like whose work you've actually seen and, and enjoyed says that they don't follow those formats. So it's, I guess it's the old know the rules so you can break them sort of thing. <laughs> but yeah, those, those William Goldman books are great. 
All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. So we want to take the time to thank our listeners for tuning in, as well as thanking our special guest, Bob. Well, thank you guys very much. It was, uh, it was really cool to be here. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 87. And if you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews are going to help us uh, attract more listeners and build our community. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter, Bob? I am. It's at Dear Bobden, and I almost never tweet. So look forward to that. <laughs> so tune in after this episode on Twitter. And if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we will be talking about perspectives and point of views and narrators. Uh, who's telling the story? Who's telling the paper team story, Nick? Um, us. Sounds about right. <laughs> we'll see you next week. We'll see you then.